Greetings and welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. I believe this is episode 42. Might not be. Still, regardless, irregardless, which isn't a word. Not a word. You're almost weekly. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and ourselves. Uh, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and very spurious allegations, which, which I mean, just makes us, you know, standard issue news or fake news, perhaps. I'm Camille Foster of Freethink Media. Delighted to be with you. Joined here in New York by one Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. Hello. Hi. Hi, Matt. Hi. How you doing? Something is wrong with his voice. <laughs> uh, Michael Moynihan is someplace in D.C., uh, apparently preparing for his performance at the I'll inauguration. I'll just play him. <laughs> yeah. Can and that, you do a Moynihan? And that, that voice <laughs> that you hear is, uh, is our very good friend, Thad Russell, <laughs> professor, author, commentator, person who says all sorts of scandalous things, uh, dear friend of this program. Who saw Hamilton today, right? Personally. I did. You, you saw did Hamilton, Hamilton today. Sure did. It was yeah. my duty. As yeah. an American? As a cultural critic. Yeah. To understand? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I hear your first impressions. Give, give me your one-sentence review of Hamilton. Devastating. Devastatingly amazing. To my feelings. <laughs> what is... <laughs> I, I mean, that means you felt many things. So you it, were you it, were an emotional it, wreck. That's so, how amazing this uh, yeah, was. Yeah, it actually was. It's the uh, genius it, of Lin-Manuel was, Miranda. You know, I kind of specialize in uh, critiquing liberals who end up being conservative. So I was expecting that. This thing politically, I mean, musically, it's great. It deserves every Tony it got. I mean, it's phenomenal. <coughs> no, it's good. It's good. Gross. <coughs> As a Broadway musical, it's very, very good. There's no question about that. That is a hell of a qualification, and I, that's important. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Politically, it's not just conservative. It's like right wing. It's so I, – I was like, I was like, am I missing something? Washington didn't own slaves apparently. Hamilton was just Jesus. The founding fathers generally were wonderful. The American Revolution was fought for ordinary people and freedom. I, it, well, I, I couldn't – Well, it was, and everyone agrees on that. I then. could – I know, but I just <laughs> – I didn't expect it to be sophisticated and have some French post-structuralist analysis, but it was just like from 1950 politically. I, I thought, what have we been doing as historians all these years? We haven't made any advances in the American consciousness at all. I mean, it was well, – and, and, I mean, and, mm. and the fact that it's written by uh, – is he Puerto Rican or yes. Dominican? Puerto Rican. And well, from the, I know he's from the Heights. We'll but. hope that's part of uh, why he's so uh, psyched up for uh, Obama's uh, pardon of uh, what's his face, the, uh, the Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican nat- oh, yeah. Uh, it, no, I mean, God, I don't know. It's really, it's atrocious. I mean, it's devastating. I mean, it felt like it just felt like <laughs> there's no hope for what I is, do. <laughs> is it? Is it just? It, I mean, it, it lacked uh, any reflection of. Of uh, of you know the kind of insights that you've had in the last forty years, or is it is it really just schoolhouse rock? I am telling you this, the story that is told through hip hop, but the story itself is pre New Left, pre everything. It is it is nineteen fifties historiography. So it's the modern left trying to reclaim the heroism of the founding right. Yeah, yes. and then so you have, and the stage is full, as everybody knows, of you know black and Latino actors and actresses 
uh, which, of course, is the nod to multiculturalism, but it's a very aggressive nod. And on top of that, there are like three evil characters, King and a couple of other characters, all three. The only white people in the cast are those people, the people who play those evil characters. It's so sort of just this naked, gross, uh, authoritarian multiculturalism, but telling a story that Rush Limbaugh could tell. Well, what's what's interesting about this, though, is it is the story that Rush Limbaugh would tell from from sort of the from the or Donald Trump for that matter. I mean, yeah, the story I mean, is a Trumpian Mike, Mike story. Pence went to see the thing it's and, when America was great. Yeah, Mike Pence goes to see the thing, and even even though he is sort of verbally dressed down uh, while while attending, um, or at least they're sharing their feelings with him, because Mike is Mike is sort of surprisingly. Uh, diplomatic in situations like this, and I suppose has to be, uh, given the role that he'll be playing for the next four years or so. Um, he seemed to enjoy it a great deal. Oh, yeah. He as, should. As have many sort he of conservative commentators. I still have not seen it. I still refuse to see it. Um, I still think that it just seems like a bad idea. Um, but that is the most I can say about I could I could say any number of other things. Thad, give us, give us the, the give us the, uh, the the 30 to 60 seconds of uh, why those of us who don't pay attention to this stuff are just kind of like the founding fathers because there's Declaration of Independence and Constitution. They're kind of awesome. And Thomas Jefferson's awesome. And George Washington. Yeah, they, it doesn't even slave it, stuff. What's what? what <laughs> some slave stuff. Yeah. I mean, every president is terrible, as we know. Uh, but yeah. like they did some some no. pretty great stuff there. So uh, give give the, the the quick why we shouldn't think about that in that same way or what should be a complicated what should complicate our traditional view of that story uh, well i mean that i the point is that it is complicated and this isn't i mean the story yeah. that hamilton tells is not complicated and That's it's good. not it doesn't even really get into the bill of rights i mean which is of course a major part of hamilton's story it of course mentions that there's a scene about it but it doesn't talk about the things you're talking about it doesn't talk about the things that we like the First Amendment and why that's important. I mean, it, it, I'm telling you, it's just like these were the great American heroes. They founded this country. And I've read somewhere that Miranda's thing was about just we're just going to put ourselves in that story. Right. Without changing the story. But the thing is, the story was not at all about liberating the kinds of people who were on that stage, black and Latino and gay people. Right. I mean, it wasn't at all about that. It wasn't even about, you know, ordinary white people. It no, that's a, right. So it's just I don't know. I, I couldn't I, I really didn't know what to do with myself sitting in there because I, I felt like this is completely on a different planet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> listen, it's it's a celebration of our of our civic religion. And, and as that, um, I suppose it succeeds because people on the left and the right uh, seem to love it a great deal and it makes you upset. That. But it's thought so of that means... it's thought of as a great liberal, right? I mean, it's thought of as a very liberal piece of art. Um, I don't know. Which, does, which, which doesn't mean it has to be true, right? Yeah, I don't know. That's it. I don't, uh, yeah, it's, it, the music's good, I think. Well, <laughs> well, I'm glad there was some redeeming quality in it and that it wasn't a total waste of time. Uh, and while you said that you feel uh, destroyed or, or wrecked or devastated, decimated, De um, yeah. you're here. And you seem to be in barely, barely can make it and to I'm four pleased. blocks. Yeah. Well, well, we'll need you today. Um, and, and we'll see if, if Moynihan actually uh, calls in as, as promised. He is in D.C., as I mentioned, um, doing inaugural coverage um, and uh, apparently performing since they've been trying to fill in all of the gaps that they can <laughs> because they can't find anyone to perform. I, I got to tell you, Hollywood's a really good air drummer. Yeah. Uh, if you go on, on, on the yeah. Internet, it's your compadre, Dan Hayes, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Moynihan and I. 
uh, do a stellar version of the classic um, uh, Matt Welch, uh, Jeff Whalen tune, Arbor Day. This is a true story? This is a true thing. It's a true thing on okay. YouTube. This has got like a thousand views. No matter how many times I try to hype it, no one watches it. Uh, and Moynihan is wearing a devil mask. Yeah, I was going to suggest that we put it a, a link up to it, but no. then I, I'm mm -hmm. not going to do that at nope. all. No, uh -uh. I may I may put a, a link up to myself singing Moon River just because all of you deserve that. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> but uh, Matt, that's a true story as well. I know, um, but you're rubbing your pectoral weirdly while talking about I, that. I ripped my like shoulder muscles. That's what that what, is. What, trying to pay for your courtside uh, tickets to hey. the uh, Cavs uh, Warriors game? Hey, 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 hey. No, actually, walking my dog. Don't hate. I didn't have Don't any hate. trouble playing for the I watched him tickets. on TV. It was great. It's you like, saw uh, him? did you see? <laughs> I, yeah, I texted him, like, hey, dude, are you wearing a gray sweater? Uh, yes, and like, yes, this I is am. the first like a basketball game I watched on TV just to watch Camille. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out Camille well, at a basketball game is super fucking boring. <laughs> he just sits there in his gray sweater. Uh, what'd you expect? I don't know. It was also, like, it was also a terrible, in real terrible life game. Um, wait, you know what? We bit, we're a few minutes into this, but there is like one more piece of business. Last night, Matt Welch has a damn debate at the Soho Forum, something we teased for several weeks. This is true. Thad Russell was there, and Thad can attest to this. Um, his opponent doesn't even get to na get name-checked because Matt's so thoroughly decimated him. <laughs> it's just Not, a smackdown. I mean, it, it was, was just, just so a... bad. I, so awful. I just manhandled them. And you should be ashamed. That. I'm not ashamed. I feel, I feel happy about it. Uh, no, I uh, debated uh, uh, Jonathan Chait uh, over at the Soho Forum. He's got a new book out. And I mean, the, the themes of it, uh, I think, are worth uh, uh, us talking about a little bit this week, just because we are in the midst yes. of this incredible Reaganization of Obama that's happening right now. Like the same thing that conservatives did with Reagan and just made him into this the you know, the the master of all their visions at least up until Donald Trump he's kind of us uh, queered that but um, just the the projector on which they could like put any uh, narrative or story that they want uh, that's happening in real time and and John Chait's book is an attempt to do that which is a weird thing for him to do right because he's a uh, writes the New York but he's very much of the Marty Peretz New Republic era he worked there for like fifteen years so. Punches hippies with almost the same ferocity as the punches libertarians or the knuckle dragging right wing, you know, um, mouth breathers out there and is more like muscular and hawkish. Um, he's the guy who is, a, you know, more likely to surprise you by uh, saying, hey, liberals, really, you do have a campus free speech problem, which is one of his uh, more celebrated articles of recent years. Um uh, and at the same time, just like, you know, always uh, picking fights and, and sharp elbows. So he is the one claiming that uh, Barack Obama had this uh, audacious presidency and he's trying to convince uh, disaffected liberals and Thad Russells and other people like that. Like you people are always complain about your Democratic presence, but you're going to see that he was he he was actually a wonderful progressive and he was a wonderful progressive by being a moderate Republican. That's essentially the argument in the book, which is a which is pretty strange. But we had a uh, uh, I think a, a fun um, a discussion at the Soho Forum was that was it televised? It was on C-SPAN. It was uh, yeah, C-SPAN uh, tele uh, filmed it, and I think they're going to be releasing it. Uh, by the time people can hear this podcast, we will likely have uh, I think a podcast, just an audio a recording of it up at Reason. Okay. Um, and uh, and I recommend people. Well, we, we will circulate that. People look into it. But the great takeaway was that a lot of Fifth Column fans out there. Yes. I mean, the venue held about two hundred people, and God, I don't know. At least a dozen, yeah, like yeah. Uh, fifth columnists I, I out there. Probably columnistas. To, to Do we have a name seven for or them? eight of you? Um, I don't know, but I like that. That's fine. Yeah. If you like that, then then you can own that. If not, you can call yourself whatever the hell you want. But it was cool to meet a lot of you. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it was great. It was a really fun event, and I'm looking forward to to my go in May. 
Um, mm-hmm. It promises to be even bloodier. So what are you debating even, exactly? Even messier. Man? So the proposition is, uh, I, I believe the dude's name is uh, Lawrence Ross or Ross Lawrence cares. Um, and, <laughs> That's how you start. <laughs> and the, the proposition is that uh, college campuses are hostile places for black students. Um, and he has written a book um, making this argument. Uh, it is a book that I have struggled to begin, uh, but I've got until May so I can sort of stop, wretch, vomit, and then try again. Um, and I, I've got a lot of time to do that. I'll lose a little bit of weight. Are you just going to spend the whole time saying there is no such thing as black students? That's because color is a construct. That is my strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's gonna race is well. a social construct, and just just leave it at that. Do yeah. you think that will work? I, no, I'm not going to do that. It will be so much more impressive than that. The way they structure it's going to be great. Things, believe me. Uh, are, believe are that, me. It starts with a proposition. It's an Oxford style debate, and then everyone like votes on where they stand on the proposition uh, before the debate, and then afterwards. And you're supposed to move the needle. And obviously, people. I want to shout out uh, in a negative way, uh, Robbie Suave from reason who was out there in the in the audience he told was me he heckling you you know he was totally polite but then afterwards when we were having a a, a couple thousand uh, tequila shots um he uh started the proposition the proposition was was you know obama is a great president uh, which is kind of a hard thing to uh to i think defend um and uh <laughs> robbie claimed to be undecided about it which first of all was a lie he doesn't think he's a great president but then he after seeing uh Ch- and the crowd was uh, was definitely more on my side they were kind of uh, hissing at him at times especially when he was calling the tea party racist and that kind of thing um and also uh, <laughs> lauding the iran nuclear deal which uh, a lot of uh, conservatives in new york did not like that laudation um but uh Suave felt bad for Chait and so voted for him <laughs> afterwards. So yeah. damn you, Rico Suave. No, he, he mentioned he mentioned as much to me. Um, but there there were plenty of factual inaccuracies that we didn't get a chance to get get to, and we will not adjudicate all of those things now because you won definitively. But I do want to talk about this uh, upcoming inauguration um, and uh, some of the things that have happened since our early recording last week. Last week when we were together, we talked about the dossier that had come out, and CNN had just sort of released right. their report, and then. Moments later, BuzzFeed actually publishes this document um, and the the week progressed. I don't know that I can say that we know much more about sort of the credibility of this document. It certainly isn't the case that we know that the document is completely authentic and that key elements of it have been verified. That has not happened. Um, I suppose it's also the case that things have not been proven false, um, but they are still just allegations. I don't, I don't think um, there's many people in, in the cases. world who believe that there were Russian hookers peeing on a bed well, this with is, Donald Trump. I, this just, is important. I just don't think that's... This uh, is important. Yeah. I don't think people really believe that. They kind of want to. Yeah. I certainly want to just because it's a funny story. But it's really hard to believe that that happened. Uh, like it just... Uh, walking through the, the logical chain of such a thing taking place is kind of uh, impossible to do. Yeah. So I want to I want to sort of revisit that. But before we get there, um, the dust up that really sort of dominated headlines for a good part of last week and is still sort of working its way through the news cycle this week is this beef between Representative John Lewis of Georgia um, and Donald Trump, the incoming president of the United States. John Lewis, of course, famous civil rights hero champion uh, who um, was sort of brutalized while marching with Martin Luther King uh, in the South. Uh, for freedom in the 1960s, um, but uh, as, a, as a much younger man. Um, but, you know, he is one of many Democrats who are who have said publicly that they are not attending the inauguration. They all have their own reasons. Uh, some of their reasons are sort of a little more sophisticated than others. Keith Ellison, uh, representative from Minnesota, um, is uh, not going um, 
Representative Yvette Clark, who tweeted that she uh, will not attend the inauguration. When you insult Representative John Lewis, you represent all of America um, or you you insult America. Uh, California Rep Ted Lieu. Uh, for me, person, for me, the personal decision not to attend the inauguration is quite simple. Do I stand with Donald Trump or do I stand with John Lewis? I am standing with John Lewis. Um, so, you know, that's that's all very, very high minded. Um, I think it's interesting, though, to give a listen to the specific thing that uh, that John Lewis has said, uh, because for me, it, it sort of matters why he uh, why he's choosing to sit this one out. So I've got. Um, some some audio from the interview he did with uh, Chuck Todd on Meet the Press uh, related to this. You have um, forged relationships with many presidents. Do you plan on trying to forge a relationship with Donald Trump? You know, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in trying to work with people. Uh, it's it going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You do not consider him a legitimate president. Why is that? I, I think the Russians participated in helping this man get elected, mm-hmm. and they helped destroy the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't plan to attend inauguration. It would be the first one that I miss uh, since I've been in the Congress. You, you cannot be at home with something that you feel that is wrong. That's going to send a, that's right. going to send a big message to a lot of people in this country that you don't believe he's a legitimate president. I think there was a conspiracy on the part of the Russians and others to help him get elected. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not the open democratic process. Did they record that on a bed? <laughs> <laughs> My God, yes, was, that, was Chuck Todd wearing silk pajamas? Yeah, yeah. No, they made there? sweet. They made sweet, sweet love um, after after that was over. Now, and I mean, I wanted to play it because my. My perspective on this, look, I have enormous respect for the people who did the things that they did during the civil rights movement, like Representative John Lewis. Yes, absolutely. I affirm all of that. All of that is true. He. He's a hero for that thing he did. Um, in this particular interview, John Lewis is actually playing the role of a conspiracy theorist. He is asserting confidently, unequivocally, that his belief, his conviction, absent evidence, is that the Russians not only sort of tampered with the election by releasing ZNC documents, but that somehow or another they collaborated with other people and that they gave this election to Donald Trump in some way, shape or form. Um, there just isn't a tremendous amount of evidence to support that assertion. Um, I suppose one could make the argument that, well, Camille, it's hard to say for sure whether or not that the election turned on sort of the revelations from the Podesta emails or that the negative coverage of Hillary Clinton related to the Podesta emails was the thing that sunk her campaign. Um, fine. I'll accept hard to say. It's still not this sort of unequivocal, I don't know. Um, not even I don't know. No, this not, president know. is illegitimate, it's illegitimate because there was a conspiracy. Um, that is it's it's important to sort of acknowledge that there's a second thing here, which is the 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 calmness, the coolness of Chuck Todd, who says, wow, I mean, then it's going to that is going to ruffle a lot of people's feathers. I was waiting and I am still waiting for the sort of apoplectic outrage from all corners of the media 
talking about how dangerous it is to have elected officials who are unwilling to accept the results of an election because they are destabilizing our democracy and and imperiling the credibility of everything. And there's going to be an outright civil war. Um, This is kind of a big deal. And for all of these representatives to sort of get in line with Representative Lewis on this, um, whether or not they're distancing themselves from sort of the fundamental claim that the election was was tampered with and completely sort of tossed uh, as a consequence of meddling from the Russians, um, they are they are tacitly endorsing that same perspective. Um, And there is something incredibly inconsistent about that. Um, And there's also something incredibly just annoying and aggravating about all of the headlines that say civil rights hero um, just sort of standing up against Donald Trump. He might be a civil rights hero. In this particular context, what matters is that he is making specific allegations that can't really be substantiated in any sort of meaningful way. It's also strategically uh, completely backwards um, to do this. Let's say that you think, you worry, sweat at night, worry that Donald Trump is going to usher an age of some kind of soft or hard authoritarianism in which he's going to tear down American civic institutions. I think it's a rational fear to have. I I worry about it. I'm actually not despondent about it like a lot of people are. Um, But what's the first thing that you don't want to do is tear down the legitimacy of (laughs) civic institutions. This was actually the conversation that that the media was having. Uh, three weeks, two weeks before the election, if we all recall, is when Hillary was going to win. And so the question was, is Donald Trump going to accept the results of the election? And so there was all of this just kind of clucking from the Andrea Mitchells of the world, um, talking to every single possible Donald Trump surrogate. Are you people going to accept the results of the election? Because if you don't, that is just terrible for the legitimacy of the process and and all these kinds of things, um, which I think was was hyperventilating on one sense and on another there is something i think true to the critique that when donald trump says things like you know um there's three million illegal votes um uh there and maybe i would have won if there hadn't been so many illegals uh voting i i think that um from a senior politician or uh now the president of the united states um is an attack on the legitimacy of of institutions in a way that's bad right but you're right camille that is not the response to john lewis the response to john lewis is oh civil rights hero um and that's it and so now we're we're seeing whose uh, side that they stand on look i'm not going to the inauguration i wouldn't fucking be caught dead at inauguration <laughs> i didn't go to obama's inauguration even though it was uh um even though i lived a, a mile and a half away from it and it was a, a really the 2008 or 2009 one I was talking to uh, Chad over there, the Trump guy. Um, uh, 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 before, we are about to make America great. <laughs> that, is, that is our engineer, Chad. Uh, uh, it was an amazing thing to see. Uh, it was a very kind of sober procession of 75-year-old black women in their Sunday bests, like coming um, and, and marking the occasion. It was very wonderful. But still, I'm not going to go to an inauguration because I don't go to inaugurations. So that's fine. Don't go. That's cool. Not a big deal. You're not boycotting anything. There's no lunch counter involved. Um, but uh, let's you're right. Let's be honest. John Lewis is indulging in conspiracy theories and totally not being called out on it and resting on these laurels. But I'm interested in what uh, Chad has to say. Uh, Chad, Thad, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, Fad over here has to, has to say being someone who's uh, who likes our, our, our civil rights uh, struggles he, uh, messy on the edges. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bill. You um, like renegades. So, he's he's being have... a renegade here, Fad. <laughs> so... <laughs> Back to you, Steve. Uh, so I, um, <laughs> Camille, 
you you presented it as if John Lewis is saying something that's unusual. I mean, no, this, is it, no, you're, is this you're not right. the Democratic Party line that he just gave? Isn't it? This isn't this sort of what Close the Democratic Party basically is saying now? Sure, a, as a group. Sure, both within the party in terms of the politicians and on MS, on MSNBC and in Democratic Party outlets. Right. I mean, this mm-hmm. is basically the line that's being taken, isn't it? That it was a conspiracy that the that the Russians swung the election for Trump. That there was a hacking of the election. I know you guys have talked about this yes. a lot. There ha- was hacking the absolutely hacking the election. No not, hacking not of the election itself. You guys have covered that. That's um, okay. Is anyone? Is true. anyone? Would anyone like to put back that information that we got from the Podesta emails? Would they like to put that back in secret? Does it, would anyone like to get rid of that information to unknow it? Yeah. I'm. I'm very glad. I got to see that, and I'd like to see more. But it, I wish it, even was, then it wasn't that interesting. Well, I, right. It was like, but, but it's it's kind well, of it's kind of bitchy it, stuff. Right? It could have been better, but it's, <laughs> but it's but it's still you wanted you wanted the nude photos. But I want to you no, wanted the, I the nude know, photos that Hillary was sending to Bill. No, I want to know everything I can about the people who have power over me. Right? Sure. I want to know everything to, there is to know about the people who wield the monopoly on violence. Mm. You know the state. Uh, I wish there were more. Uh, bad actors or good actors or any kind of actors doing this kind of thing and revealing more things. I wish the RNC had been hacked in this hmm. way. I wish every single email ever produced by a politician were hacked and given to the public. Um, it's kind of remarkable that lib- so-called liberals are now, you know, arguing that this was a bad thing for the public. No, it's a bad thing for the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, it is most definitely a good thing for me. Uh, and You know, raise your hand if you'd rather put that information back into its secret hole. I don't don't think there's anyone. Now, the other thing um, is this use of, I've noticed it's not just Lewis that they're using, they're putting forward with this thing, right? They're putting them in, they're putting the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah. And they're making sort of them the front men for this attack, I've noticed, not just Lewis, but others. Yvette Clark is one, right? Um, It's despicable. It's the treatment of... Black people in general, but civil rights leaders in particular as these non-human beings, sort of a Jesus figure or a unicorn or some kind of mythical victim who is always right. And if you if you contradict what they say, you are, by extension, evil. This is uh, Joan, Joan Walsh this is, yeah. made, this, made this argument on, on Twitter as well. She tweeted, um, what do left-wing skeptics of Putin allegations make of the fact that most – that the most outspoken leaders believing it are black Congress members? Well, the thing about Joan Walsh is that no one knows black people like she does. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, as a, when, I, when I began on Twitter a couple of years ago, that was one of the first tweets I saw was her saying that about herself. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah. Because, they're, because they're so typical. It's phenomenally patronizing. So it's actually – you know, it, it comes across – is like this extreme sort of valorization of the civil rights generation of black right. people. It's right. actually quite It's not veneration. It's treating them like, as I said, not human beings, not adults, not like you and me. It's like treating them like this special object, right, that's just supposed to be worshipped. It actually ends up – they end up treating them like children, right? Yeah. Because when your child says um, – Daddy, there's a monster under the bed. You say, okay, yeah, maybe there's a monster under the bed. I understand your feelings about that. Instead of saying, no, there's no fucking monster under the bed, right? Um, it's treating them like children. So, And recall a couple of things about uh, John Lewis. I think Kevin Williamson had a, a good point about this, which is – you know, he sees John Lewis like he sees John McCain, like a total 1000 percent American hero 
Um, that doesn't mean your 75,000 years in politics and Congress and the Senate afterwards are going to I've be spotless. Great. No. Um, those are, by the way, those can be this separate. has been what this is John Lewis's job in the Democratic Party for the last whatever it's been 30 years. He's basically mm-hmm. he's really been a party hack. I mean, he's basically been a machine politician. He is watch he's him essentially at, been deployed by the party leadership since since he took Congress. Well, watch he, him in, in the uh, the oversight committees. Uh, I, I think uh, he was on uh, government reform with a uh, with, uh, Daryl Ice or one over the or Chaffetz, one of the big committees that's always getting in Benghazi hearings and, and other things like that. It, everything is a witch hunt, which reminds you of uh, how things used to be back in uh, the segregated. So, I mean, everything it's crazy and like blocking off a very legitimate right. and illegitimate, I'm sure, you know, not very interesting uh, avenues, but very hacky. And he's and, you know, he mentioned in his Chuck Todd uh, silk uh, pajamas interview there that uh, this is the first inauguration that he's going to miss. Of course, it's not. He uh, also boycotted uh, George W. Bush uh, inauguration. Uh, he's uh, he referred to John McCain in 2008, I believe, was someone that reminded him of George Wallace. Like, just think that through. John McCain reminds you. It just doesn't. It's not. They're not the same type of. They're not remotely. Well, they are opposite human beings. John McCain and George Wallace. John Lewis's role in the civil rights movement was similar to the one he's he's played in the Democratic Party since the 1970s, which oh? was. Uh, oh, he was a good soldier. Oh, that's true. He was not one of the. You know, no, no. He no. was not one of the great intellectuals of the movement. No, he um, wasn't. You know, he wasn't so great. Anything. Yeah. I mean, in terms of you know, I mean, sh- as, showing as a leader, up, showing up he, is a thing. He was there and yeah. he was willing to get hit in the head. Yes, that's that's what set him apart. And, he and, became, and people, and he he risked he risked more than that. The, people, it cost people more than that just to be there. And it is worth noting that most people weren't there. So it was most yes. black people did show up at yeah, those marches. Well, this is an argument I've made. Yeah, but if you actually count the number of <laughs> black people or anybody who actually showed up to any civil rights demonstration in the 1960s, it's a yeah. tiny, tiny, it's tiny, like the tiny number minority. of French people in the resistance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, I mean, it was a deliberate strategy of the civil rights leadership to create martyrs. Yeah deliberate explicit strategy and he was one of the people who was willing to do that to become a martyr i mean i mean so i do i do he's not someone you want yeah. to necessarily learn from yeah. right and it certainly doesn't hold the truth yeah well he also on, he also what you're trying to learn as a as a historical thing one of the things that the late andrew breitbart did um which was typical Breitbart, like both genius and bravura, is that John Lewis accused, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Tea Party protesters, of using the N-word right. at him and uh, a couple of other members of the CBC, if I have, right. have it. And Breitbart just called bullshit on it and yeah. said, there's no way in this era that people were not taping it. So I will pay you $10,000. Yeah, Let's make it $15,000. Let's make it $25,000 if anyone comes up with a tape of someone in the crowd using the N-word and they never found it. And then at the same time, Joan Walsh and other people were like, I, I, you know, who, who um, are you going to stand with, Andrew Breitbart or John Lewis? Um, and even as someone who is a friend of Andrew Breitbart, my instinct would be to side with John Lewis, except for that Andrew had a point. I think he was right. Yeah. Yeah. There is something to be said for this sort of moral authority mercenary. Uh, Is this moral authoritarianism? (laughs) Absolutely. You you get sent out. Well done. uh, Yes. I I did. I coined that. That's another one, Matt. I'm racking them up here. It's true. But those are are real words. That's the difference. Moral authoritarianism. Uh, Unlike unlike, uh, journalo. Journalo. You know what? Bad. This is Damn the it. English to word. We're Americans. <laughs> Unbelievable. Here. Yeah. We add to language. That's we don't right. I'm a renegade. It. Damn it. I get to make up my own words if I want to. And so long as people embrace it, con- context, convention, and something else are all. 
whatever the hell it is. I love all your words. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Good. Um, well, I mean, look, I think perhaps we've spent enough time here. It is worth mentioning that Donald Trump also caught some flack for sort of firing back, of course, by via his favorite medium, Twitter. Um, he uh, he referred to John Lewis as all talk. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that he was doing so in response to what he described <laughs> as his sort of rather crummy uh, record in Congress, um, specifically with respect to making the community that he serves in Congress safer and better. Um, it is the sort of criticism that it's kind of true. I mean, this is a, a shabby place. It's not doing particularly well. There is high crime in the in the district that he serves. But what would be better is if the criticism was coming from someone who actually had good ideas on how to address the crime situation uh, in that district. And Donald Trump has none. I liked uh, Justin Amash's uh, response uh, to Trump's tweet, which was – and Justin Amash is like a child. He's younger than all of us. Uh, Kennedy and I went to uh, one of his staff's Christmas parties or New Year's Eve parties or something a few years ago in D.C. And they're all like 20, including him, like listening to young people music. It was terrifying. But anyways, his tweet was uh, – Dude, people music. Dude, just stop. Yeah, I don't know if he should stop. I mean, I mean he should not stop tweeting. Certainly not. That's yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah, but he, I mean, even there, I think firing back at John Lewis. I'm sorry, he totally was right. Totally he was right. Trump yeah. was right. Totally that, in that in that particular exchange, Trump was correct. Yeah. And there it is. as a matter of fact, John Lewis has been all talk since 1965. Ooh, shots fired. Well, Thad. I'm sorry. Shots fired. That is making America Damn great it, right Thad. over here. I know it's going to be the Thad know, and Chad show. I just insulted soon. all of America, right? <laughs> according to who is it? It's not the first time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, so there's something else here. I mean, we, we're talked, we talked a little bit about the role in the media of sort of covering this story. And sort of relatedly, we mentioned the dossier earlier. Um, there is sort of this feud between CNN and Donald Trump that has emerged after the press conference uh, in which Donald Trump is asked a question from someone at CNN and rather than answering the question, screams them down, decides he won't take any questions from them repeatedly after they continue to try to interrupt him um, and says to them, quote, unquote, unquote, you are fake news. <laughs> um, I loved it. It was a uh, <laughs> loved it. It was a rather interesting <laughs> moment. Um, it It is the sort of thing that I think journalists sort of ran with the coverage afterwards suggested that this was the prelude to the dark days ahead for all of us uh, because the Trump administration is declaring war on all journalists. Uh, we've actually seen um, all sorts of stuff come out sort of since then um, with respect to journalistic organizations sort of closing ranks, sending open letters to President Trump, informing him of their intention to sort of cover him passionately and consistently, whether or not he's granting them access, they will find the story. Um, they are committed to telling the truth about the Trump administration. I, I wonder um, what your sort of perspectives are on the the outrage about all of this. Um, certainly, I've got... I've got some sort of weird feelings um, about um, CNN in particular in the way that they've handled this. Um, but I, I want you guys to sort of weigh in first and then maybe I'll, well, I'll put think myself out that there. And I will at, least, will at least agree that that uh, was just that whole press conference was just entertaining. It was <laughs> awesome. It was it was a thousand percent addictive. Oh, God, yeah. uh, I'm not I'm, I'm, I can't wait for the next the time. One. We, I, the I'm time not wearing the MAGA good. hat like uh, like that is. But like it, you, you <laughs> can't you cannot you cannot deny how enter I mean the whole thing you just as a uh, as uh, my wife would say my like my god the level uh and and at the same time you 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 can't take your eyes off the thing it's uh, it's incredible um he was trying to conflate uh what CNN did with what BuzzFeed did 
which was uh, very uh, ham-fisted, inaccurate, um, probably effective to some degree. Um, and he was just yelling at a reporter who was who was uh, being very Sam Donaldson-y in a way that we haven't really seen reporters be uh, during the Obama administration, as evidenced, by the way, of his press conference today. My God, I, I recommend people go and, um, and uh, read a, a, a Washington Examiner uh, article, which was just made up of the questions. There were eight questions at the at the press conference. And of course, uh, they were, uh, you know, like multi-part uh, uh, college exams or something like that uh, uh, questions. But they all boil down to like, President Obama, is it is it going to be OK? Right. Are we, are we going to be OK? Is America going to be OK? So part of uh Trump, uh, it, it's interesting that the Jim Acosta, who's a good reporter and doesn't you know necessarily deserve to be called fake news, he, um, uh, I doubt Jim Acosta would ever have treated Barack Obama in that way at all. Uh, Anthony Fisher had a great post at Reason about this, um, saying basically, no, Donald Trump uh, freezing out a reporter is not a biggest threat to the freedom of the press. Barack Obama has had a absolutely lousy uh, uh, administration when it comes to his dealings with the press. He's blocked mm-hmm. record numbers of Freedom of Information Act re- requests. He's used the Espionage Act more times against leakers, whistleblowers, and, and journalists than all previous presidents combined. They subpoena reporters right and left. If your name is James Risen or James Rosen or anything like that, you're screwed. And, <laughs> uh, people say that when it comes to national security, uh, certainly the worst uh, president having to do with leaks and other things since at least Richard Nixon. Um, he's just been awful about this. And during his press conference today, he was, uh, you know, one one of the questions was, uh, you know, Mr. President, what are you going to be, how, how are you going to be gracing our presence uh, after the election? And he said, and and I actually don't uh, beat up, beat him up on his responses because I'm already getting to the uh, I I miss the guy. As soon as the president leaves, I start missing him. I miss George W. Bush. He's painting. I hated that guy. And you're like, oh, he's kind of a sweet guy now. He's no longer president. I'm a sucker for ex presidents. Yeah, daddy issues. Uh, that's possible. <laughs> um, if you met if you met Pete Welch, you would uh, a lot of things would become clear. Um, but uh, I. One of the uh, the laugh out loud lines, which didn't get the follow up question the same way that John Lewis didn't get the follow up question from uh, Chuck Todd. Um, he said that he's going to be looking out and he's he will speak out on those moments that our institutions become uh, under assault. And as uh, um, his like second example of something that might not happen, like uh, a bad thing that would require him to get in the ring, he said institutional efforts to silence dissent. Wow. Um, President Barack Obama is going to come in and uh, and be the champion for all of us. And I think that 90 percent of the national political media don't even blink when he says that kind of stuff, despite the fact that his record it's certainly is, not now is just the opposite. No, at the at the present moment, when he says things like that, it is it is a breath of fresh air and it is it is a, a nod towards all of the things that we'll miss. In fact, I do have um, sort of some audio from the press conference of him sort of extolling the the benefits of a free press um so i'll I'll play that since matt has alluded to it it goes without saying that essential to that is a free press that is part of how this place this country this grand experiment self-government has to work Uh, it doesn't work if we don't have a well-informed citizenry and you are the conduit through which they receive uh, the information about what's taking place in the halls of power. So America needs you and our democracy needs you. 
We need you to establish a baseline of facts and evidence that we can use as a starting point for the kind of reasoned and informed debates that ultimately lead to progress. And so my hope is, is that you will continue uh, with the same tenacity that you showed us uh, to uh, do the hard work of getting to the bottom of stories and getting them right. Stop there for a minute. Um, Thad, I mean, look, I, I think there, there are a number of sort of av- lanes I want to go down here. I, I want to get your sort of take on this uh, before, before we do that, though. Yeah, so, I mean... I... I agree with Matt. The most entertaining press conference I've ever seen, and I can't wait for the Talking next one. Talking about the Trump one, not the yeah, yeah, not no, the, sorry, yeah, the Obama least, one was pretty tame. Least entertaining press yeah. conferences are Obama's <laughs> because they're all sycophants. Uh, <laughs> and I was going to use not how he I was going to use rougher it. language there, but I, I didn't. Um, it's, he says uh, that they're not supposed. So you to know be. what Trump has done that's actually wonderful, and and a couple a couple of smart journalists have noted this. He has created an adversarial press. Uh, that's what I saw in that that press conference with Trump. I saw that entire room wanting blood, and I loved it. And he was giving it right back to them. I saw a full-on fight between Trump and everybody in that room. That's what we want. We want the we want the press going after whoever is up there at the lectern now. Of course, I get depressed as soon as I say those words because I know that. When Cory Booker is president, <laughs> guess what will happen? Again, <laughs> but well, they'll breathe a sigh of relief and they'll be they'll be all too happy to have the the new guy. In but town. it's good at least to get like a once per century you know reminder <laughs> that this is what the press should do. I, I, want, I was going to say mm-hmm, go ahead. so you know these rumors that Trump's going to kick, or I guess it's more than a rumor. I guess he threatened to kick the press out of the White House. Well, what he's what he said is specifically. It's it's a little difficult to untangle. What was suggested was that he's going to move the press out of the White House. There's this place called the Lower Press Office, which right. is where the press hangs out. There's a whole basement area. I used to lurk in there um, that, during the, you, my college you years. You lurked? When I had uh, press credentials mm-hmm. uh, for the White House, I used to go there. And I used I to lurk in the Capitol building. Ryan and, and other folks. Um, but um, yeah, so they're going to move the press out of the Lower Press Office and into some other nearby facility. And what they have suggested, they haven't committed to this, but what they suggested was the reason for doing this was because they were getting so much interest in covering the Trump administration that they wanted to create more space for people to actually attend press briefings well, whatever. press conferences. Whatever the re- I mean, whether he's going to actually move the press out of the White House, he's definitely done it symbolically. Uh-huh. Right. And that's what we want. We I, I want so. the press to be removed from the White House. We want them to be removed from the corridors of power. Look at look at what's happened to the press since basically Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. Roosevelt's the one who began this. He was a very shrewd tactician and he brought the press in and he courted them. And they guess what? They became little sycophants. And the national press, basic, with a few exceptions, loved Roosevelt and said what he wanted them to say in their headlines. Uh, that's continued ever since. It, it took another – I mean Reagan really kind of ramped that up. And in fact, there was a not a bad book written in the 1980s, which I'm sure Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan know, remember, called On Bended Knee. Great title, which was about this phenomenon that the press covering Reagan just let him get away with murder. Right. And that's certainly what happened with Obama far too often. Now, we, <laughs> this ain't happening with Trump. And I love it. It's fantastic. So we want to – rather than – and then freak out that, oh my god, Trump is threatening the First Amendment – uh, which he might—I don't know what his intentions are, but I he certainly he certainly should, suggested we that welcome yeah. not actual it's not actual attacks on the First Amendment, but we should welcome this kind of adversarial relationship he's had with them. Um, another thing about the BuzzFeed dossier, uh-huh. um, you know, did you see Ben Smith's 
uh, explanation of this. I saw I, him I talk was, on, on, on Brian Stellar. I agree with him. Yeah. Uh-huh. I used to play basketball with Ben Smith. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah. Is uh, it any good? And this is, has nothing to do with – no. This has nothing to do with my um, admiration. I, again, I don't well, – Have you I played just, basketball with Barack Obama? Um, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. Mm. I wouldn't lower myself. Oh my Does gosh. he like go to Occidental and uh, and like no? He slum? refused because oh. because guess what? Occidental, that Russell? That's when he was smoking and possibly dealing weed. So they kept him apart from Oxy oh. during all during his presidency. Very deliberately, he never showed up at Occidental his entire eight years. Wow. Um, I think it was right. I think it was a good thing for them to publish it. And because and Smith, I thought made a really good argument, which is that you know it's it's actually a thing. It's it has social significant social significance, political significance. It's being discussed in the White House, in the CIA, in the FBI, in Congress. Has been for months. It ha- it already is affecting yeah. government. Its existence was part of the reason CNN went with its story. I totally. want to know what it says. Totally. Yeah. And and this is and this is the the part about the the CNN flap that has bothered me. And it's something that we we have been talking about and I've been obsessing over for like the past month and a By half. By the way, I just proved that I'm not uh Michael Moore Trump. Pro Trump. Oh yeah. Okay. Right? I just took an anti-Trump line. I don't know about that. Yes, I did. I don't know. I don't know if that's good enough. You'll have to go further than that. Because every once in a while, you know, even Chad disagrees with Trump every once in a while, but he still loves him. And I mean you have that make America. <laughs> well, of course great I again, love Trump. Tattoo, that's obvious. So um but but there's there's sort of two things here. I mean, the first is, you know, the the very sort of high minded, um uh, uh moral high road, um I don't even know if that's the right phrase. I don't know. I'm gonna back off it a little bit. Jake Tapper comes and he talks about um, sort of the coverage. They're defending themselves. They're saying we did the right thing. Folks are trying to conflate um, the the coverage that is happening in at BuzzFeed and CNN. It is true <coughs> that CNN did not release the dossier, that CNN only sort of talked about the dossier. But when Jake Tapper says we didn't report on any of the facts of this document, we didn't report on any of actually, I think the word he used was details. The fact of the matter is that when you say that there are allegations in this document about the Russians compromising the Trump administration. And while CNN hasn't verified the details, the very next thing that you say is that the FBI has that the intelligence agencies have briefed Trump on it, which is to say, perhaps one way of reading this is this is very credible stuff. We haven't verified the details because it's super duper breaking news. But there is um, an it. But there's an it there. There's something there. And you ought to know what it is. Look, if all you're going to give me is that, it, it leaves the it gives one the impression that this is potentially or very likely very credible information that the federal government has that is so super duper se- top secret, so explosive that they can't even tell me what the details are. Not that CNN isn't releasing this because we can't corroborate it yet. So we don't know if it's factually accurate. No, the presumption is that if you're reporting it, that on some level, this is kind of sort of credible and I, that that is important. So when BuzzFeed actually gives me the documents and when BuzzFeed actually includes the caveats that, look, this is not yet verifiable, and this is not, perhaps unverifiable completely, that, I, I would say, is more complete reporting. It is more complete context than what CNN provided. And this is the issue with the just the facts. We believe in objective truth, journalism, nonsense that you get, not just from CNN, but from every fucking body in the universe. It's that when you provide an incomplete report like that, when you provide sort of a, a fairly weak T qualification of the allegations that are there, e- even these nonspecific allegations, you do present the illusion that this document is a effectively true. 
Um, and perhaps all the details haven't come out yet, but people in power, people who are important are talking about this and it's worth knowing. I don't know how much truth there is in this document. Having read it, however, I have a better perspective on that. Right. And my perspective on it is most of this seems like nonsense. A lot of it seems exaggerated. It is not hard to believe that the Russians are trying to compromise Donald Trump, but nothing in that document suggests to me that they actually have done so. Um, there was plenty before this that would give me the impression that maybe they could. Right. Even even without this document, I could say, yeah, he's got a lot of business dealing abroad. Maybe that is a thing that someone is using to compromise I would, him. I would but the evidence isn't there. And I'm, I, I guess the contention here is that I think BuzzFeed, perhaps, I'm agreeing with you, Thad, has done a better job of covering this story by at least providing the document now that someone is reporting on it in the detail that CNN was. I would make the argument. I think that's better. I would make the argument that the ecosystem worked. I think there is a place for serious, highbrow, self-stuffed shirt journalism there where there are high flutin standards precisely because we have buzzfeeds and other things nipping at their heels the way that the ecosystem didn't work so the the joint publication and then the thrashing about well you know how it should have been done the exchange between brian Stetler at cnn and, and ben smith at buzzfeed well, sure i want that. that's good i want that fight. we got all that yeah. um so the the ecosystem ended up producing um the stuff that we wanted the only exception is um, man, it, it kind of took a long time for the BuzzFeed thing to come out, actually, because people are talking about this was being traded around Washington, right. around since the Ocella October, Cordes, I guess, since was, October. Uh, when, when it started in if, Jones. If we would have had a still viable gawker. Um, we would have had it straight away. We would have had it in October. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, that's that is, I think, uh, that's just true. That's Entirely that possible. what got that is the whole premise of Gawker is that whatever journalists are actually talking about at the bar and gossiping about, that's what we want to share with readers, which is a real balls to the wall ethos that you can't. That we've seen you can't survive with, uh, but uh, but they would have done it, and uh, and I you know I think yeah would have been well. Better. It's just it's just the, the the pretense there, you know that that <laughs> there is this obvious attempt to conflate. Well, look, I don't know if the Trump administration was actually conflating this or if the Trump administration. Take yeah, the persp- but I don't know if they took the perspective that I take, which is, look, CNN not mentioning the not providing the document and not mentioning specifically that there were golden showers involved doesn't make them much better. So far as I'm concerned, than BuzzFeed that actually published the story, um, published the dossier and gave you some sort of limited context to go along with it. I would have preferred that the BuzzFeed story was better and that the qualifications were more strenuous uh, from the outset. Um so it wasn't exactly sort of the best possible coverage of this. But in my estimation, it was perhaps not perhaps in my estimation right now, it was better than what CNN did. I want to so, uh, before agreed. I before I'll, I forget there before I forget the point. Um, but uh, adding on to uh, what Thad was talking about, the sycophancy there, um, a point that I didn't make in the uh, in the uh, John Chait debate and I hopefully we'll make in the upcoming uh, review of the book uh, somewhere like. In chapter two or something, he just throws in a mention um, that he went to a half a dozen off the record conversations in the White House with Barack Obama. Mm. We get exactly one, one bit of information from those. Mm -hmm. This is deployed in one paragraph. And the information that we get out of that is that um, uh, President Obama really didn't like all of the ceremonial trappings of office, and he just sort of rolled his eyes at uh, at the fancy stuff. He Entirely just re- believable. He really uh, not at all. Uh, you know, he preferred kind of like the intellectual policy work, and that's that's what we get from six. Right. You know, uh, right. no, he he hated the he hated the hero worship. Everyone everyone knows that about him. 
I mean, we, we would all hate that. Who would who would not hate being one of the most loved and celebrated people in history? It, well, that, it just speaks. Just to, it speaks to it speaks to journalists. Well, this, uh, like Chait. I mean, it's they are of the establishment. But, but I mean, it, it happens on the left least, and the right, though, doesn't it? I mean, even oh, for sure. opponents of, of, of the, the president from a political standpoint, the ones who cover him, who are close to power, <laughs> there is a certain amount of respect that is sort of conferred with the office automatically. And I, I, I wonder about this as well. <laughs> and this is sort of the, the lionization of journalism as a, as a discipline and the journalists who practice it. When, when again, Jake Tapper, not to pick on him, um, because I think He's a really lot good. of people do it, and I like him in a lot for a lot of reasons. But when he talks about sort of, he was on uh, the late night sh- or the late show, and he was talking about um, sort of the the proper way to ask a question repeatedly without making yourself the story. And I thought to myself, dude, when you talk about a story, that is a part of the story. You are a brand, and you lend credibility to stories you talk about because you're a brand. The fact that you are doing this at all is part of the story. It always is. The fact that CNN actually covered this is part of the story. You can't escape that. And I do think that there is something wrong with both the the sort of worship of the practice and not having a clear sensibility about all of the sort of conflicts of interest, the, the, the things that make it really difficult to actually achieve this impossible standard of objectivity. Um, the, the journalists don't seem to be aware of it, and they continue to promote this fiction to people who are sort of reading and consuming the news. And I, I get that it's I a standard agree. and I know you're working towards it. I but agree, we ought but to, it's also... sometimes is huge, Matt. But, but sometimes th- there are useful fictions. There are useful goals, right? The goal of, of the people who get up in the morning and work for the LA Times where I used to work, at least they tell themselves, is that we are going to come up with yeah, a, a fair reading on the news of the day and try our best to hold people to power. Oh, you're, are you defending objectivity? I'm defending. I'm not objectivity. No, I'm not. Um, I'm defending. I mean, the fiction of it. Uh, no, I, I'm, or do you think that it's not a fiction? I think objectivity is a total fiction, okay. and I'm not defending the fiction of objectivity. <laughs> I am defending the fiction of uh, an attempt at fairness and of having uh, high-minded standards. I think that should be part of the ecosystem. It ain't the only thing. It goes immediately to self-caricature, as you rightly point out. Hubris. Uh, people don't realize their own, and this always gets at me. Their own just massive. Uh, uh, political ideological biases, the ideological bias of I'm trying to figure out what's wrong and what we should do about it. They don't see any ideology in that. And it's swollen with ideology. It is almost by definition ideological. So I've been criticizing this since I've been alive. Um, At the same time, I'm glad that there are uh, uh, journalistic traditions in this country more so um, than in most other countries of trying to chase the, you know, the, the electronic, uh, electrical rabbit of fairness and of, of high fluid standards. I don't know what, what's the difference between fairness and objectivity. Fairness, uh, objectivity is I am uh, acknowledging that I'm a biased human being and I'm going to share it with you all my biases, but I'm going to try to treat people and treat, uh, combatants in any given story, uh, with fairness. I'm going to try not to let, uh, uh, depending on, you know, the, the kind of, um, the amount of the slant of the publication. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm going to give the the the, the best summation of even my uh, opponent's arguments and this kind of stuff. I'm going to treat the facts uh, fairly as, as I can. I, yeah, I still, I don't have, I don't hear a definition of fairness. You know, so how many minutes per candidate does that mean? Yeah, I how don't, many I don't and how think, many candidates does that mean? Yeah, like, I don't think of it. Cover... I don't believe in the fairness doctrine or anything like that. No, oh. I, no, I, I think I think all that is uh, garbage. No, it's just it's like. Fairness for me, the way that I attempt to uh, 
imbue it whenever I do it. Just, is every word that you write correct and verifiable? Like that is a, an approach to trying to be fair, fair with the truth of the language and of backing stuff up, so, even in the service and especially in the service of opinion journalistic ar- arguments with a total upfront slap. Right. Like I, I wrote a book criticizing John McCain. I wanted to make sure it was fair to him. And I'm and I, a, a thousand, a thousand so percent. Uh, I, I was happy when people read that and said, you know what? You made me like him better and I'm going to vote for him. I thought that that was a, a totally fine uh, response because they learned something about him uh, that was useful to them. And they, re- they react to it in the way that they wanted to. But I, I think I presented him fairly. And that was a goal. Well, those, those people sound scary, Matt, the people who read your book and said, I am totally going to vote for him because I like him now. Um, that's, that's weird. A lot of Central Europeans. Okay. A little bit more interventionist. Than well, they shouldn't the have been voting player. in our election. So <laughs> there's that. Um, Thad, you, you were going to say something. Were, were you going to rip, uh, rip Matt up? It sounded like Matt like was ending up with the defense of objectivity. No, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you said the thing about like there are certain things that are facts. I'm going to make sure that they're, you know, everything I say is true. It's a belief. in if you believe in truth and a true fact, that's a belief in objectivity. There's no, I, I think there's no such thing as well, the, a true fact. There's no are, such thing. Are as you a, in this, are you in this room right now? We, well, you and I had an hour long conversation about this earlier today, but, but anyway, you can, but you can uh, give me some, I mean, that's a thing like you, no, you, no, it doesn't. Oh God. Really? You want to do this? A little bit here now. You want to, a little bit. You want to destroy your listenership? No, I won't destroy my listenership. And unless I believe even if you say something crazy, it won't destroy the listenership. I believe there's if. nothing. There's no fact outside of human consciousness. I think that everything is an interpretation. Okay, So within the bounds of human con- consciousness, we, we, we perceive what we're doing here we're interpreting what what's happening yes, yes, as yes. us sitting in this room yes okay but there are other ways to to yes there that. are so but within the okay. bounds of human consciousness oh, and within, the standards okay. and the standard the, that's an the standard point. erector set i think i taught you this in which we today. live yeah yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yes I, okay that's a good point yes uh there are of course rules that we as a society have agreed upon yes right and so I think maybe that's what Matt's talking about. Yes. So there are ways to follow those rules. Yes, that yeah. are, that do match the rules. It, it, don't forget. But, like, but then I, got, I flunked out of school. Okay, so like, <laughs> like you fancy academics uh, and your philosophy. There, there's You're nothing in, but nothing but atoms in you space. You went to a much better uh, college than I did. What college did you go someone to? Someone who said that. Antioch. By the way, I thought Antioch was really good. No, no, God, no. Oh. Um, uh, by the way, I spoke before John Lewis at my college graduation. He was the commencement speaker. And did you, I, and did I you was dress him student, down? I was the student speaker just before him. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And I was not impressed. That's, were you, were you I found, a, that's uh, when I found out that John Lewis, you know, that's when you said wasn't you one of the great intellectuals of the civil rights movement. Were you a dirty <laughs> hippie uh, back then? Yeah, and, I was uh, kind of, I was the conservative on campus because I was a socialist. <laughs> um, can I? Can no, I just? No kidding. That's can the, I? Can I big myself yeah. up because I did Google to to make certain that I was correct. Democritus did was the person who said that there was nothing but atoms in space. I just want to make certain that it is clear to everyone that I, you, I just did. Did that. you say that earlier? I said I that. You guys you. were talking. I but told not listening. Yeah, people we who tried, were listening heard. We try to ignore you. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But if you listen to me, people, there's a great deal of wisdom here. Uh, well, I don't know if we sort it out. Try not to interrupt out. us next time. Like, okay? <laughs> I understand. Yes, I'm Lots sorry. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Won't happen again. Um, hey, hey, hey. What did hey. you just do to me? What did you just do? Nothing. Take it back. Nothing. Take it back. <laughs> Nothing happened. You just did. <laughs> What Camille hates I said, I'm sorry, boss. See, oh, boss. We're not friends anymore. (laughs) Um, Well, look, uh, there there is something else that happened. (laughs) Moynihan's going to be so pissed off that that you went went black scent and he wasn't. Not even just black scent, like deferential, deferential, antiquated. Yeah, yeah. Um, Black face. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I'd never do it in real life. In real life, <laughs> you don't want to mess with me because you already know. Um, yeah. So there, there were other things that happened in the uh, Obama press conference that are perhaps worth visiting. And I don't, I don't know. Should, should, can we move away from the, the dossier and the, yeah, the yeah, journalists yeah. sort of closing ranks? Actually, no, there is one more thing I wanted to, to sort of say on this point, which is um, I don't think that all I, I love the point you were making earlier, Thad, um, about sort of journalists sort of finally being confrontational. Matt, I heard you sort of echo some of the sentiment there as well. We're all happy to see that. It certainly isn't clear that most of this will transfer to the next person who holds the office. Um, for the most part, it's like respect for the office, respect for the institutions. Oh, my God, this guy is crazy. He is the problem. Um, if we can just do our job, then perhaps we can hold him in check. Um, perhaps. Um, it is it is certainly the case that there's a great deal of hysteria and hyperbole. It's not all hysteria and hyperbole. There are definitely things to be concerned about. Most of the things that I am concerned about, I was already concerned about with the previous administration and the administration before that. And I am already concerned about with respect to the next administration, regardless of who is taking office. It could be the the noble and wonderful Judge, Judge Napolitano. Um, and I am still concerned about the trappings of executive power and and the, the ability for the administration to sort of overreach um, and do all manner of bad and nefarious things. Um, given the opportunity and without sufficient scrutiny. Um, so I hope that some percentage of the journalistic establishment like actually just gets this bug and can't shake the infection the way you guys can't shake these coughs that you bring into the studio every Sorry, damn week. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but uh, so look, we've got a couple of things here. The Manning pardon happened. Uh, and I was hoping that, that Moynihan would, would, would rear his, his head. Um, I didn't say ugly. Um, so that he could sort of be the the foil here because I, I wanted that. And this is – it's not a coincidence. It's that funny he's that he's here. not here, isn't it? Yeah. Not a coincidence. Duckin. Skirt. Skirt. Um, but uh, there, there's that. But there's also, Matt, I, I think just sort of some broader some broader issues from last night um, that I wanted to get into as well. And I guess I guess the two are related because with the Manning, the Manning pardon um, – what is Moynihan's position on Manning? Well, I think all he said to know. me, all he said to me via text was it's complicated. So mm. perhaps he will still manifest so he can. He, he doesn't can like Assange. He doesn't like WikiLeaks. Yeah, but what is this uh, typical Moynihan? It's like, I don't like this. I don't like that. But what does it mean in terms of actual policy? Well, look, I, what does he want Manning in prison or not? Does he? I don't, want I don't know. If he would, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I don't know if he would not. say. I don't know if he'd say. Does he want to time. invade countries or not? <laughs> yes. You know, finish <laughs> the thought. Well, Michael. there's but there's been at least sort of three strains with res, with respect three strands, three strains, three narratives, perhaps um, categories of narrative with respect to Manning, which is. The Manning pardon is um, a dangerous precedent because this person did all sorts of things God, to endanger so. the United States. Um, and you cannot let people like this out early no matter what. Or that this is too little too late. He should have never gone to prison. He did exactly the right thing. They shouldn't be keeping secrets from us. We should know everything. Um, and then the third is, well, this seems about right. He served some time, which is what the president said um, during his press conference. This was not um, sort of a joke. This was a big deal. And, you know, if you read the New York Times story, you'll see that um, – I, have I been saying Bradley Manning or have I just said Manning? I think you said Bradley. Okay. Yeah, because I'm I'm a horrible, hateful person you, and that's the reason proven why that you're referred a to him as a he and not a she. On PBS. The, the New York Times, however, um, the, the, the story that they wrote on this, um, I'm forgetting the name of the title, but it was like Bradley Manning's or Chelsea Manning's time in a horrible men's prison, which was like, oh, okay. 
All right, that's the angle here. Look, there are plenty of angles to take. Um, I don't know which one of those Moynihan embraces. I know for me, I think it is a good thing that Manning is getting out. Whether or not Manning should have done any time, I'm actually not entirely sure about. Uh-oh. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, was there, <coughs> was there a law broken? Sure, yes. Um, were there confidential documents that were leaked to the, to the public? Yes, thousands of them. Um, some of them did potentially endanger lives. Certainly, at a minimum, the way that this disclosure happened was sloppy uh, and ham-fisted. It is definitely the case, I think, that most of these things perhaps may have been embarrassing to certain government officials. But for the most part, I, I wasn't overwhelmed by the, the sort of documents. And, and a lot of the documents we got were these like diplomatic cables or this research that was prepared by diplomats with respect to sort of their counterparts in foreign places. People saying things that everyone knows is true, um, but saying it in plain English, for example, oh, the Chinese, the numbers that the, the, the that statistics about the Chinese economy are completely fabricated. Who doesn't know that? That there's, <laughs> that's a thing. Um, but the thing that really sort of stood out to people was this collateral murder video um, in which there was an attack from a, an airborne vehicle um, on what, as we now know, are civilians. There was no indication that the people who did it at the time knew they were civilians, but there was sort of this follow-up attack uh, where they were shooting at people who responded who were clearly there to collect the bodies and this was also part of sort of the secret cache of things that was disclosed why that video is was um sort of classified as secret at all (coughs) is not very confusing it's not because it was genuinely secret it was because it was embarrassing to the administration one word vietnam sure so you know after vietnam uh the pentagon cracked down on the press and this was played out most uh, clearly in Iraq, I mean, it was actually policy, right? So that the there was just they very much limited press access to the front lines during the Iraq War and in Afghanistan and in all military conflicts since Vietnam. Terrible thing, right? But isn't um, isn't that one of the things that we heard a lot about um, during the Bush administration? They were talking a lot about sort of the press embeds and the yeah, fact that the journalists, yeah, were yeah like but so this tightly around. controlled, tightly regulated. And so this is yeah. access. They complained about the embeds yeah. in the embedding process right. under Bush, and then when Obama got 70 percent more uh, U.S. deaths in Af- Afghanistan during his presidency. He didn't hear much complaining so about that anymore. To me, how that works. To me, what Chelsea Manning did <laughs> was to uh, correct that in a sense. I mean, basically what he gave us, she gave us, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is what we got from uh, CBS News during the Vietnam War and Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers. We got that kind of information, which, goddammit, we need and I want Sure. when, when they're killing in my name. That which they always are. Correct. They so always are. Whether, I, whether you know about I it or not. I most definitely want to know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad the stuff was leaked. I think that there's the Moynihan argument here, and I've, uh, uh, I presume uh, it's one that, um, that I've, I've heard other people whose res- opinions I respect, um, is that there was some endangerment of sources and human beings uh-huh. out there, out yeah. there. And if you're enlisted in our army and you release information that is classified as secret and that endangers people. I know there's some skeptics out there no, about, no, no. That, about that mean, claim as well. Um, and so if if that's your job and you're and you're violating your orders in that job um, and doing it in a way that endangers people's lives, um, 
you've committed a crime. Right. Um, I, I agree with the president that seven years, you know, of a, a pretty wretched existence. Is, multiple, multiple suicide attempts. That, like a very I mean, serious. It's, it's clear Manning's not a, not, not a very uh, healthy psychologically at this point. Right. Maybe never was, but you know, who, who cares? Uh, it's irrelevant. I, I mean, I mean, I'm, I care for the human being, but I, for the story, it's not important at all. Um, but, uh, Seven years is a long time, and th- and a lot of that information we absolutely needed to have. Um, so we and, should and should have had from the outset, and should have had from the outset. So uh, the only, you know, uh, the only thing that keeps me from just uh, a, a complete unalloyed uh, high five is uh, putting people in danger while you're breaking the, uh, you know, the law and the and your own rules of uh, of your work. Um, but um, it, and know, the, I, think, and I think commuting the sentence was right. Well, well didn't specific... endanger as many people as you know invading the country. Well, this is um, this is true. And, true. and I, more importantly, I mean, that, that was slightly a cheap shot I just made. But no, no I think so more, cheap. I the think more it's important fair. point I think is that that argument is used as blackmail against anti-war people. You cannot. You're ever saying that Chelsea seek... Manning is into blackmails? No, 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 no. The opponents of Chelsea Manning and are blackmails. Opponent... No, saying saying Sorry. saying that releasing any information, any transparency like that, it endangers soldiers and our our allies in these countries. Right? Don't ever do it. Right. So Bush was right. We should have. You know, we should limit totally uh, press access to war zones. Right. And and it, even it, and even the, videos that make the United States look bad because those mail. things and, make, and so I reject the premise. And Barack right. Obama extended that uh, that uh, uh, that policy um, in a huge turnabout from what he campaigned on. He Absolutely. campaigned on you will see the rest of the Abu Ghraib photos. Right. Hmm. And once he had the awesome you know an awful responsibility of power, I think it was in the first four months of his presidency. He's like, yeah. I thought about that. Uh, it <laughs> yeah. would make things inconvenient. I mean, it's like the Abu Ghraib photos is like uh, is like recognizing the Armenian genocide by name. Um, you always promise it, and then you get to the White House like, God, you know what? Turkey really would get pissed. So never mind, Glendale. Uh, I'm never going to win your support. How about releasing the footage from the drones? <laughs> yeah, and we should. I, I've never. I mean, I've, I haven't even seen still photos of what the drones have done. I mean, maybe a handful. I mean, have you? I've you know. We know how many dro- bombs they've dropped, thousands and thousands. I've we, seen that's just that we, we actually don't know. A couple of We've still seen computing, photos, computing maybe, of, the, of the damage that was done, right? Yeah. Let's, there's cameras and all those things. Let's see the footage. I want to I ask you guys uh, this. I mentioned this uh, in, in the email because it's sort of – Came up in the in the background of uh, the conversation we have. John Chait. Chait's much more hawkish than uh, I am, and I'm hawkish for a libertarian. Um, uh, and and uh, someone in the crowd asked him, you know, basically, what about all of Obama's drone wars in the half a dozen countries? He's just killing people. He has kill lists. It's obscene. Um, a, a point that I uh, I uh, agree with and made uh, as well. The counter argument for uh, some interventionists is that, hey, look, our robot drone wars. Are killing less people than our massive land wars. Like we've, it is, it it's terrible, and we're blowing up weddings and all that. All the that bad stuff is happening. It's totally true. Um, yet we are swapping it out for a a technology in some ways uh, that was more deadly and more therefore uh, destabilizing. Just kind of curious to hear your guys' response to that argument. Besides just the throwing up your hands at it. <laughs> well, I, the issue the issue for me it it is perhaps true. That that is the case, like maybe, um, and that is the very best I can give you. Um, I, I think the the issue for me is certainly not sort of fetishizing the technology, which is something that that there are plenty of people who do. It's just like, oh my god, it's a drone. That's weird. You can't have machines killing people. That is problematic. Um, it is the fact that this is still 
an incursion into some other country and effectively military operations taking place, killing people. This is war. Um, and if the United States government is going to be engaged in war, all of the same parameters ought to apply. There ought to be a very high standard for getting engaged in these conflicts to begin with. And there sure as shit ought to be a lot of transparency about who is being killed and why we are killing them. Um, the fact of the matter is, as you pointed out in your debate with Chate yesterday, is that with the drones, the policy is different. Um, the president does get to do a great deal in secret. Um, and it doesn't matter that it's a specific list of people. Right. The specific list of people like makes it it is intolerable that it is a specific list of people. But even if it wasn't specific and he was just killing people in other parts of the world in uh, what a half dozen countries um, over the course of a couple of months, um, that would still be problematic. Um, so that is the fundamental issue. And it's difficult for me to believe that, you know, we would be involved in just as many countries. Right. Absent. This drones. actually makes it exactly. easier for yeah, us exactly. to go into Yemen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's the major so, point. So that is the yeah. that's the principal issue. And by doing it, I mean, talk about domino effects. I mean, what happens when you go into a place and you kill in, perhaps by mistake? Right. I don't think Barack Obama is the sort of monster that does not care at all if he's killing innocent people. Perhaps he is, but I don't actually think that. Right. Perhaps it's a mistake. It doesn't matter. Like, I need to know. Like, people need to know. There needs to be honest reporting about this. And the fact that there are human rights organizations that have been routinely sending letters to the Obama administration, which the Obama administration routinely ignores or at least pays sort of lip service to talking about itself as the most transparent administration in history, while giving out reports that just aren't credible on the number of these strikes that are taking place, right. the number of casualties that there are, and, and they're the always number of, militants. quote unquote, en enemy combatants that are being killed because they happen to be above the age of 13 and have a penis, not because we actually know who they are, um, is monstrous. Um, and that is the that's the real problem here. So that I, I don't know. Have I have I not gone far enough there? Because no, I, no, it was good. Okay, good. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I think what Obama has done, I think maybe his signal achievement actually is that he has provided the best answer for the establishment to the Vietnam problem. Hmm. Which was, and this was made explicit in foreign policy sort of establishment circles after Vietnam, you know, we can't commit large numbers of ground troops anymore. We can't do this because what happens is we have these massive anti-war demonstrations in the streets and our presidents lose their jobs and everything goes to hell. Uh, they've worked on that for a long time. They started to reduce the number of deployments, the number of actual troops on the ground, boots on the ground and subsequent engagements. But then, you know, Obama really figured it out. And I think he, I think people around him at least made it explicit. Matt can I'm sure talk to this, speak to this, you know, which was it's this combination of using drones and special ops, uh, special ops, not just special ops, but special ops at night. Night raids has been the, the, the favored tactic. To kill these people. So, no, yes, it does reduce collateral damage, so-called, um, and it certainly reduces the number of Americans on the ground shooting guns at people. But as you said, Camille, and this I think is the major point to make, it enables these wars to go on forever because we don't ever see it. Mm -hmm. We don't ever see what's being done. It's continuous. There are more of them. So there will yeah. never be a significant, probably not, significant anti-war movement. As long as they do this, we don't see it. I don't I follow this as closely as anyone and I don't see what they do. Well, if there is going to be one, right, the the person who would help to create that and bring it about would be one Donald Trump. And it is possible huh. that there is enough no. enough hatred and loathing for him no. that they build an enduring movement, right? Like Code Pink, which totally didn't disappear. No, during because the his opposition is pro-war. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> no, they are. It's Putin. Perfectly wrong on yeah. everything. 
the opposition to Trump is now pro-war. Yeah. They want Cold War <clears throat> 2.0. <laughs> Never stop fighting the Cold War thing. Never stop. <clears throat> I just had this terrible cough. Where is Moynihan when you yeah, need Yeah, where is Moynihan? Uh, so Matt, Matt I'm, I'm sure you have something to say about that. <laughs> oh, we should always fight Cold Wars. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shy. Yeah, I'm not shy about You're that. Just, you're just nostalgic for those Harrison Ford movies. Um, which those, ones? Are, those are pretty good. All the, I mean, all the I Jack Ryan movies. Oh, yeah, all the yeah, Cold yeah, War yeah, movies. Yeah. All of them. I, I like them too. Uh, uh, actually, the, the movies that you watched in the Cold War were World War II movies, right? It was no. like you would watch uh, uh, Guns and Navarone. At well, least we did my my uh, family. Yeah, uh, but our our Cold Cold War movies, hell, my Cold War movies, like at, in the 80s, like growing up, oh, it's, Red Dawn it's, and, it's Jack yeah. Ryan. Yeah, it's Jack Ryan. Thank it's you. the Hunt for Red October, exactly. which was which Jack Ryan, but that wasn't Harrison yeah, Ford. Some good fiction came out yeah. of the Cold War. My mom had a huge thing for Harrison Ford. I never quite understood, um, but That's whatever. Confusing. Um, yeah, no, I I I, uh, <laughs> I thank you for the, the discussion on the on the drones and the and the sovereignty stuff because it's uh, I've, I've been uh, like working through it with my own kind of brain. Oh, I sorry. One yeah. last point. I hate the question itself. I mean, not yours, but the way it's posed often. Sure. The question basically is, would you rather kill 10 people or 1,000 people? Yeah. And my answer is neither. Neither? Right. Of course. <laughs> and I but appre- you have to choose. I appreciate that you, <laughs> that you went there at the end uh, of of, uh, of uh, the discussion. Thanks. Because I, uh, I was worried that you would just go there at the beginning and throw something at <laughs> my head. Uh, no, it's uh, it's something that is not going – it's just – it's not talked about. And, and the, the partisan nature of it also plays up a, a huge amount. I mean I was listening to – God help me, the uh, you know WNYC, the, uh, the NPR affiliate here. But while they're uh, in the run-up to the uh, press conference and so they're like filibustering for time until, until uh, Obama got out there. And it was remarkable uh, them talking about like – what he, what you know, how speculating on how what he might do up there, and they're saying things like, you know, he's going to be emphasizing all of his foreign policy victories. Um, uh, you know, he's uh, he's he's going to uh, uh, what else did they say? Who, who uh, was it? Um, it Mar Mar Eliason, uh, uh, from uh, from NPR. Just the NPR hacks uh, were, were there, uh, and yeah, and like you know, he's going to show his uh, his intellectual side like one last time, and and uh, and you know, and they pointed out um, which I haven't been paying attention to because I haven't been watching any of the exit interviews, and I didn't watch the speech. I'm done. I mean, it's press. I watched the uh, the press conference today just one last time, uh, mo- mostly to see the press and not him. Um, but I'm kind of um, I'm uh, over the uh, Obama era. Now, but they were saying in all of his exit interviews, he keeps uh, hitting on that one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't do a good enough job explaining uh, why his policies are really good. And that's actually a big theme of Chait's book. Like uh, the reason why um, it's, you know, uh, called audacity and it talks about like, you know, his ideas will prevail is because he knows he's fighting a losing argument. Because Obama, everyone knows Obama's inarticulate. That's really his problem. He's a really bad speaker. He did the same thing in notoriously in, in 2012. Uh, uh, all uh, I go to the uh, the Democratic National Convention every four years. Uh, again, God help me, uh, and consume all this media. and And it's always great to see his sort of big time magazine uh, interviews and stuff. And people and journalists lap it up because he knows how to play that. He knows how to work those refs amazingly. He's like, you know, I just really hate to see this false balance out there. He like he knows how to talk journalist journalo speak uh, out there in such a way so that the same kind of false equivalence and and uh, and uh, whatever is the lingo in the uh, in the uh, meta analysis of, of journalese, uh, he speaks at that moment. But back in twenty. 12 too, like when people were saying, well, what do you think about this point in your presidency? His biggest thing was, I haven't been able to explain well enough. I, have, I haven't been able to give the narrative. He's his uh, Peter Sudman wrote a really great piece about uh, his books 
I don't know if you've read uh, Obama's books, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I uh, reviewed them for your magazine. No, maybe it was. Maybe I'm confusing this with. Well, the, with, I, uh, I folded them in. I mean, I folded the review into another review. But yes, but like uh, Obama makes stuff up, right? Like oh, yeah. he, he's and, and he's uh, he's very interested in narrative as a concept, like as a mm -hmm. governing concept, shaping his own life to sort of fit a narrative. Um, like uh, changes facts in order to get there. He's he's always trying to reduce policy. Um, or or sell it or amplify it by the narratives of individual humans. Every night before he goes to bed, he has a folder full of letters from average Americans and talking about their stories. And like he's super story focused. And to think that the failures of his presidencies, because he has been able to successfully tell us the narratives about how great everything is, it's amazing. And that's what we're going to hear about Obama for the rest of our lives. Because there isn't going to be another uh, Democratic president, I don't think, that is going to have the same kind of glamour that he did. And and it's a it's a great sort of empty suit glamour, right? I mean, he's a good looking guy. His family's very handsome. He's, you know, he's from like a, a generation that was just a new generation he's, he's to perfect. hold the presidency. He's perfect. Yeah. Um, and, but like he, you know, what, what does he contain actually from a policy point of view or what, what did he actually do? Yeah. It, that that's, didn't really that's, matter. That's we just secondary, yeah. we project into him and just imagine how much that's going to happen now going forward by everybody as they all uh, lionize. Well, there, there are a couple of sort of closing, closing thoughts I have on this. And, and I actually want to pivot to, to something you sent around, uh, Matt, just before we all arrived here, uh, via email, um, you know, I got a note uh, from a buddy of mine who listens to the podcast who is um, just very good friend. Like he's a he's sort of a he's a progressive uh, and his perspective on the show, Owen, um, was uh, that we often sort of come at things from a right wing perspective, which hmm. uh, he just doesn't understand the whole sort of left, right, libertarian weirdo thing. But that's fine. Whatever. Um, and that. In particular, we spend a lot of time talking about identity politics, um, which, sure, I have a hobby horse and oftentimes I will mount that bastard and ride bit. the shit out of it um, <laughs> because because it's been but That's it's been sexy. but it's been it's been a part of the conversation um, over the course of the last like year while we've been doing this podcast. It's not like I'm finding opportunities to do this. They won't leave me the hell alone. <laughs> um, but but what's what. I think is perhaps more important is like today, you know, this is what, two days before Obama sort of goes away, kind of, sort of, but not really ever. Um, and, you know, obviously we spent a lot of time talking about his myriad failures and that's because there are lots of them. Um, and there, I want to, I want to sort of turn the dial a little bit towards Trump because very soon that is going to be the predominant thing that we'll be talking about. But I want to pivot to him by talking about something that you alluded to yesterday, which Matt, I'm, I'm gesturing at you, no one can see it, mm -hmm. is that for me, the crowning achievement of this administration, something we've talked about before, is as you put it, the loaded gun that he is leaving oh. on the desk of the Oval Office here, here. for borrowed, the next guy who's coming. Borrowed from Gene Healy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Gene Healy, um, Cult of the Presidency yeah. uh, is the name of his book. Very, very good. So it's important. written written during the Bush administration um, when everyone hated executive power um, before a lot of the people on the left forgot that. Um, but, you know, the that gun is there. It is, in fact, waiting for Donald Trump to come and claim it. But this interview, <laughs> this interview that you sent around, Matt, I mean, I was trying to read it. And there is something about reading transcripts of Donald Trump talking that is just insane. And granted, any of us sort of taken out of context, just sort of strung together in sentences, not curated in any sort of way, can sound sort of incoherent. 
It's amazing. It is often indecipherable. <laughs> and then when amazing. I hear the audio, it's not any damn better. And it is clear that he is spinning as fast as he can. That every single day that this job perhaps seems more and more too much for him to potentially handle. Even There was a, an interview in Axiom, which is it Axiom or Axion? Axios. Or Axios, or Axios whatever the hell it is. What a strange name. That is a strange choice for the name of your new media publication, um, Mike Allen. Uh, at any rate... Um, the the interview there, at least, he seemed sort of perhaps a little tamer, but mostly he just seemed overwhelmed by this whole thing. So I don't know, Matt, do, do you have thoughts on the, the rambling, incoherent, in, in a way, quite terrifying interview that Donald Trump gave um, to, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting what publication it was. The Times of London in conjunction with Build. So it's kind of uh, uh, the German paper. The German-UK mashup. Yeah, which is great. So he uh, bounces back and forth between Brexit and Angela Merkel. um, And he just, I mean, he can't (laughs) hold a thought. It's amazing. Like, uh, I I don't have the exact section in in front of me, although I'm looking at it. Um, In Afghanistan, he rightly points out, like, look, you know, we've been at war at 17 years. What are we even doing there? We should go. It's terrible. That was the highlight of the interview. Yeah, (laughs) until... Two sentences later, when he says, "Because the problem is, we're not right. we're not allowing our soldiers to win. Right. If we just let them win, <laughs> like, dude, you just I'm you I'm laughing. The point that you just made. I'm laughing, but really is terrifying. It's his mind is just wandering all over the place. Uh, he did. Um, uh, it's a cheap laugh, but it's still pretty funny. It's like uh, he's asked, "Is there anything typically German about you?" And he really says, "I like order <laughs> <laughs> and strength. I, I, I like things done in an orderly manner." And certainly, the Germans—that's something that they're rather well known for. Like, oh, oh my gosh! But I do. I like order and I like strength. And the thing is, he doesn't even like order. I mean, was yeah. this an orderly right. presidential campaign? Oh, that's, that's why I take solace. I mean, it's because he's not about order, actually. Uh, but there's there's also in it in addition to the just kind of hilarious incoherence and he's just like on all sides of of every issue it seems yes. like but he keeps hitting on a, su- a a few things and some of them are going to affect our lives and one of them uh he keeps hitting on we're going to have a 35% border tax which is another fancy trumpese way of saying tariff um he does have more latitude as president to do things like that than than we would like to him to have uh, and he doesn't certainly feel any restraint about that uh, congress is trying to gently uh, like say, well, you don't really mean that. Maybe we can um, mix that with cutting down the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15 percent or something. Um, but he's serious about this. He's talked mm-hmm. about this. Uh, all of his uh, uh, picks. He mentions this tax every time. Um, I mean, and, and even if he doesn't get that, I mean, it's one of those things where you shoot for the moon uh, and you still somehow land among the stars. A metaphor that does not make we a great are, deal of we're sense have, because the stars are further than the moon. We are, we are moving from six decades of steadily reducing tariffs to now the country who's leading that project um, very abruptly uh, increasing them. That is a that's a huge new yeah. and I think t- uh, terrible uh, yeah. well, uh, hit, thing. Hit home at, at Walmart and Target like very very quickly. And he also talks about um, uh, travel restrictions to Europeans. There's 35 countries I believe in the visa waiver program, which essentially means that if you're French, you can come to America for 90 days without a visa. Um, this has been the case. Uh, for a long time, a lot of different uh, countries uh, are like that, um, and he has. It's been coming under attack uh, already, e- including from people like uh, Justin Amash, um, saying that we need better screening of those muzzers coming in from uh, Europe uh, these days. Uh, and he says, "Hey, look, we're going to have to see." And uh, he does have a lot of power to do that. That is a, a potentially very large change when suddenly, because those all 
visa waiver programs, like all consular arrangements, those are bilateral. They are reciprocal. So we as Americans get to go to Europe for 90 days without having to uh, apply for a visa and pay for this and this kind of stuff. That is going to change. So many the things that scare me the most about the Trump presidency have to do with changing those uh, steady international norms that I have liked. Um, and uh, he's going to mix it up. He's going to definitely uh, 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 throw uh, the water balloon against the wall. I mean, we always knew he's going to be a catastrophe on trade and immigration. But this, the stupidity of this interview <laughs> tells me that the cabinet is going to have its way. Tremendous amount of control. Um, which is going to be a mixed bag. I mean, you know, the, the thing that's really stood out to me about the cabinet pick so far is how conventional they are. They're just basically Reagan Republicans, as far as I can tell. You guys see anything different than that? I mean, Tillerson was a huge disappointment to me. He, I thought he was going to be much more non-interventionist because his company That's is actually it, non-interventionist. Maybe feel a lot better. It's just strange that how that how that went. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I wouldn't. But no, no, but. But he did reject regime change and they're certainly not neocons, which is a good thing. That's an improvement. But it's it's it really looks to me like a, a Reagan cabinet. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing that he has that we haven't seen a Republican do um, perhaps since Reagan is he's got people who are going to stir shit up. I mean, Betsy DeVos right. is going to She's slam, your, exciting, yeah. slam your face into it. So is uh, Pruitt at the uh, EPA. I mean, these are he's uh, uh, appointing critics of some of the places. I presume um, uh, Perry Ben Carson at, at Energy. <laughs> who knows uh, what, what oh Ben God. Carson will be at, at, at HUD. Uh, so that's new because uh, George W. Bush didn't do that. So there will be uh, some very entertaining tensions between uh, in the regulatory agencies on some of those places. But it is remarkable how different, you know, uh, Mad Dog Mattis and Rex Tillerson were about pretty essential like NATO questions in from Russia. From Trump, you mean. From Trump. Right, yeah. Like there is a, a huge amount of daylight between how they were characterizing uh, events. I mean, he was asked in that in the interview, um, would you trust uh, Putin more than Merkel? He's like, nah, I, or Merkel more than Putin. He's like, no, nah, I trust him about equally. I, I think it's because there simply is no one in the foreign policy establishment who can do those jobs who holds Trump's views. I agree with that. About with NATO. The, with the ex and, exception of Dana Rohrbacher, who's uh, rightly mm, uh, seen as, uh, as a crazy person. Close. I mean, Rohrbacher is not quite there, right? Is he? I mean, he's, he's not talking about. No, Rohrbacher is backing like, out of NATO, is he? Um, he's he's Putin's biggest ally in Congress by yeah. far. He was a, a very apologetic towards him, towards Crimea and East Ukraine. Uh, very Ron Paul-like. So I'm going to piss off Matt and Moynihan right now. Everyone should look at the video of Dana Rohrbacher uh, interrogating Samantha Power about Ukraine. It's it's quite oh, that'd fantastic. Be yeah. He's also every year uh, uh, introduces really good uh, pot legislation on Capitol Hill. Yeah. He's one of the best uh, pot guys. So I just said something nice about him, too. Yeah. Well, we uh, we've given the people a lot. Um, you know what I don't have today? Uh, some idiot wrote this. Um, we've we've sort of railed about any number of uh, things. I did uh, offer some some critiques of that uh, CNN story um, releasing uh, announcing that the dossier was there, but not giving it to us. I, I don't know if you have got anything that you were sort of burning to share, Matt. And, and I don't know if you came prepared for that. That if there was something you saw. Yeah, and hated. Dad, do you have a, some idiot wrote this? <laughs> Shocking that. <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, you can do you can every, do the reverse every, of it. It's been okay. you can do the reverse of it by bigging up the the great piece that you wrote for Reason oh, um, entitled idea. "No Way Out" uh, about prison reform and race, uh, which I think is brilliant. And this is not me teeing you up to give me credit for any damn thing, Fat, because I really, again, 
it was just great. It was good. You clearly put a lot of effort into it. And there is an insight there um, towards the end of the piece. And you should read the whole damn thing. Just don't skip to the end. And that um, whole issue, too, which yeah. is really terrific. I, well, Reason is always terrific. No, but that issue is probably the best issue of Reason <laughs> since before I was editor. Oh, good. It's really good. Yeah, well, you did nothing but horrible, this horrible is true. stuff while you were there. So it's, it's good that Mango is there to save the whole publication from you. Um, but perhaps you could share uh, yeah, a little us, bit of a little, uh, little bit of insight about that. Uh, so it, some, some, some thoughtful person wrote this thing. It started out as a review of a new book written by a Harvard historian named Elizabeth Hinton, who actually went to Columbia as a graduate student just, I think after I was there, um, which is an argument that the good part of the argument, I think is that it um, is that the mass incarceration could be traced back to policies established, first established and ideas established in the Kennedy and, and Johnson administrations in the 1960s rather than the traditional narrative as you know, that it started with Nixon, that it was amp, amp, amplified by Reagan, that it's a conservative project. So there's a new wave of academics doing this work who have identified liberals actually as the, the prime drivers of mass incarceration. I wrote another review of a different book for reason about a year ago, a much, much better book uh, by a professor named Naomi Murakawa, who's at Princeton. She makes a very compelling argument. Uh, Hinton does not because what she does is she says that the reason these liberals enacted these policies that, that led to the incarceration of all these people is that they were racist. Racism is the cause of every bad thing in criminal justice. In the United States since the 1960s. Well, I, I learned that from watching the 13th. When, in fact, I argue in the article, all of the policies that she identifies as racist were not racist in themselves. They certainly had terrible effects on a great number of black people. Uh, they actually – the roots are in progressive legislation and progressive ideas about criminal justice dating all the way back to the early 20th century. So the roots of it is in progressivism, not in racism. She also – in her narrative, which is incredibly detailed, um, goes all the way from the early 1960s to the present almost, you would not know that a single white person had ever been put in prison for drugs or really any other crime. When in fact, as we sit here right now, there are something like half a million white people in state or federal prisons. And since the 1960s, millions and millions of white people have been incarcerated or shot to death by the cops in the war on crime and the war on drugs. You wouldn't know that at all from this book. So the, the mass incarceration and criminal justice is all, I know someone in this room knows a little bit about this, um, is always talked about as simply a race. And you actually, Matt, talked about this last night. It was very good. It's always talked about as a, as a race issue, strictly. It's just about race. Um, when people think mass incarceration, they think black people. It's not actually true. If in fact, we found that – I found that amazing video I showed you earlier mm -hmm. of Ta-Nehisi Coates of all people. Ta-Nehisi. No, no. It's Ta-Nehisi. I say Ta-Nehisi. His mama call him Ta-Nehisi. I'm going to call him Ta-Nehisi. Because you have no respect for him. Damn right. Ta before Ferguson, about a year before Ferguson, Coates gave an interview in which he said, first of all, that systemic racism is overrated and – uh, that if you eliminated all – if you freed all the black prisoners today, we would still have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. In the interview, he wasn't quite sure of it. So well, fortunately, he, he, someone He believed that was true and he was right. He was yeah. more right than he, knows, than he knew. Um, it's true. We would have the fourth highest – we would have the fourth largest prison population if every single black and Latino prisoner were released tomorrow. That's how many white people are in prison. So – 
if it if it's all been a racist conspiracy to put black bodies in prison and break black bodies, it's been a very strange way to go about it. So we need to think about this problem, a massive problem in different ways. We need to think about maybe the laws that made things crimes that weren't crimes before and maybe don't need to be crimes that put cops in contact with people that lead to things like Eric Garner and Walter Scott. So we need to think about policy and law and less about the secret thoughts of police officers. You're presuming we actually want to fix things, Thad, rather than just be upset about them. And I, uh, I resent that. So thank you I, for sharing. I, uh, that's great. And, uh, uh, and I just, uh, uh, I'm sad because it felt like, uh, uh, in 2014 when Ferguson was going down that there was a week or two or three, even when the conversation was kind of going there, it was going towards power. Uh, in addition to race, it wasn't all race. It was like, oh, where did they get those weapons? And why does that prosecutor have immunity? And don't they have a record of being kind of lousy here? How come they weren't made accountable? Is there some union rules that got in the way? Like it was all on the table. Mm-hmm. Rad- people were quoting Radley Balco in all kinds of unlikely places there. And, and, and there have been some reforms at the and, state level in some places. Yes, and there's no doubt about it. And that's ongoing. But just like the the quality of the national conversation, I think sadly uh, didn't improve there. I, I my I had my hopes up because it's still been in the news. It's still been part of the conversation. I mean, that was the same uh, year of uh, the independence in 2014. Yeah. And we kept having these stories to talk about. And I, I did call it at the time and, and, and strenuously suggested over and over again that making this about race was a huge mistake and that it was likely to, de- to derail most of the substance of these conversations. It was likely to rob us of any opportunity to score like meaningful reforms or to drive home the, the point, the real actual point that if you want to change these things – it's got nothing to do with whether or not the cops are racist. For the most part, we can't even really make determinations about that, um, at least affirmatively. So I don't think you you did this on the show, but you and I talked about this, the Walter Scott case, which is, you know, the current outrage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I myself thought for absolute sure that that was a bad shooting and quite possibly racist. It turns out that that cop may very well have been doing what he was supposed to do according to state and federal law. There, which, th- which, doesn't, which does not make it a there, great shooting. There's a quite – no, no. Of course – well, right. Yeah. But I mean – well, a bad shooting is usually defined as yes. a cop yeah, yeah. who does who, – who violates the policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually quite a compelling documentary about this. Some un- weird guy, some graduate student, I think like a computer geek in Minnesota for some reason decided to take this upon himself. And he studied the video and he did, went frame by frame and saw – that actually the cop followed policy, probably, probably followed policy. Mm-hmm. And that is probably why it was, a, I think, a hung jury, right? Right. Or a mistrial, compared, uh, declared a mistrial. Which should um, be a great opportunity to talk so about let's, those policies. Right. So except, inst- except, except no. 100% of the discourse, and I got into an argument with Michael Moynihan's favorite person, George Cicciarello, the, the Mr. Um, Ven- uh, Bolo, um, what's his face? Uh, Chavez, Chavez, the Chavez apologist at Drexel University. Um, it's, it's all about, oh, my God, this is yet another example of how racist the system is and how racist the cop was. And let's only talk about that. No, it's actually that cops are required to shoot at people they believe – have a taser in their hand. And it is quite possible to believe that that cop at that moment b- believed that Scott had his taser in his hand. Well, well, he did have his taser in his hand. I mean, you can see in the film is frame 394. 
Um, I if, thought he threw it. If if he had mistaken. this taser. And he, he had it and then he, then threw he threw it, it and, and then he ran. And then he turned and ran. And then he shot. But, but the was... cop may have believed that he still right. had it. And there's there's quite a bit there. I mean, when you watch the video, there is no doubt about it. Like he, Walter Scott has his back turned and has taken like a couple of strides before the shots are discharged, right. which is which is what makes this so awful to watch. But the part that you're saying, Thad, that is defensible in some way, shape or form, potentially, um, at least as uh, from a legal standpoint, is that. If Walter Scott still had that taser in his hand and it's not clear that the cop saw whether or not he did and if the cop had been sort of tased, if the prongs were in him, um, even if they weren't, he might have believed that Walter Scott was still a risk, a danger to him in some way, shape or form. There's an even more important point the documentary makes, but it sort of buries the lead, I thought. They make it at the very end and I thought this is – It's called narrative tension. Okay, That's Uh, why you do this. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Filmmaker. Yeah, we try. Thank you, Orson Welles. Uh, So (laughs) – no, it you know it turns out you know the reason that Walter Scott ran away was that he thought the cop or he assumed that the cop would find out that he was delinquent on child support payments. Uh, oh man, right? That's why he ran. And so that whole system, by the way, <laughs> we need to really look at that. And um, and as that, as as a as a divorced father, I have had a little bit of a taste, but nothing like what millions of men have experienced, which is that that whole system is stacked against men and fathers. And there is basically a whole lot of extortion going on out there that are that's enforced by courts and police. That's why Walter Scott was running, most likely. Yeah. So that's another law we need to look at and probably remove or reform to stop things like that from happening in the future. Yeah. And I think I think uh, uh, close it off after that. Um, I think uh, an unspoken part of looking back at the progressive or even modern liberal uh, roots of of putting these. Uh, um, uh, the mass incarceration system together is to actually self-examine the kind of paternalism Absolutely. that was part of it and yep. begin to ask yourself, was that a smart paternalism? I mean, Joe Biden, how much has he had to do with the creation of our carceral system and the creation of the office of the drugs are and a bunch of other stuff? But he's old Joe. We like him. His heart obviously is in the right place. Yep. Well, you know, people, we live in a time now where everyone's in a full-blown panic about um about uh, uh, human sex trafficking and it's just like an absolute fact light fact uh, averse uh, panic about this kind of stuff. We are creating new systems like this, even as we are decrying the existence of the old systems, which we are belatedly recognizing as being terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like this has been uh, fact packed or perhaps not not quite fact packed. Because we didn't really do a podcast. This isn't a podcast at all, Thad. <laughs> That's right, man. I mean, this this is whatever you decided it. This is right. Which is perhaps I'm not here and I'm not Camille Foster. I, I have not been joined by Thad Russell, who I am perhaps not grateful for having in the room. Or perhaps I am. I'm not sure. It all depends on your point of view. This is true. Um, Matt Welch. Should we all join the Troom Gang now? <laughs> I, or, I mean, maybe we already are in the Troom yeah. Gang. Perhaps you are in the Troon Gang, dear listener. Uh, this has been the fifth column, or has it? Uh, perhaps we'll see you the time before this, because time is is a, a is a flat circle. Uh, we we or know not. of new oh. methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column. Column. Column.